welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. The end of the year approaches, and I'm not gonna lie, I'm feeling a bit sentimental. Maybe it's because a local theater has been playing Rent, and I can't stop listening to the soundtrack. I don't know, but I've got a lot to be thankful for. I've been blessed with a wonderful family and professional life, and I get to do a job that means something. This podcast has become a creature all of its own. And thanks to all of you, and it's really just remarkable, 191 case summaries, and we're about to hit 300,000 downloads all time. Kim and I have come a long way from this weird COVID experiment, and I've gotten to know and meet so many people because of it. Your continued trust in me means everything. I'm especially grateful for the podcast sponsors, of course, KKTP, Docketwise, and Staffy, as well as all the patrons. You guys support the show for no reason other than, well, to support the show. And it helps me continue on during those dark nights of nine case weeks. If I can ever do anything for any of you, especially you wonderful long-term patrons, you know where to find me. That includes CLE certificates, by the way, for both patrons and anyone else interested. I've heard it makes an excellent stocking stuffer, especially for non-attorneys, as they don't have any idea what it's for, thereby making it a great conversation starter. I'm always two steps ahead. Happy holidays and happy new year to everybody. And thank you, Circuits, for a very manageable end of the year. Here are the cases. Burned out with admin work? Most immigration lawyers are. That's why over 90 law firm owners have chosen Staffy to help them with the legal, administrative, marketing, and client-facing work. Staffy's goal is to help immigration lawyers live a more balanced life while seeing their law firms grow and scale. 
and they do that by providing a service that includes top-notch bilingual virtual staff with the HR support that will alleviate the law firm owner from onboarding, continuous management, and training of their virtual teams. Concentrate on this strategic work and let the team at Staffy help you with the rest. I have a Staffy and I couldn't be happier. Schedule a free consultation with Staffy at www.getstaffy.com. That's G-E-T-S-T-A-F-I.com. And claim $500 off by using the code STAFFY2024. That's S-T-A-F-I-2024. Starting off with matter of H.N. Ferreira, published by the BIA. This case is about I-751 petitions and termination. The statutory framework for I-751s is found at INA Section 216, which is always a bit of a maze to me. So go back and review the statutes and many subsections when you get one of these. Just a heads up. Mr. Ferreira? is or was a conditional resident of the United States based on his marriage to a U.S. citizen. The reason he had a condition to his LPR status was because at the time he applied to adjust LPR status, he had been married for less than two years. Under such circumstances, if an adjustment of status application is approved, USCIS makes the non-citizen a conditional resident. Then, within 90 days of the first two years of holding conditional status, the non-citizen and his or her spouse must file a joint petition to remove that condition and make the conditional LPR a full-fledged LPR. There are exceptions to filing jointly, but all exceptions require a showing that, yes indeed, the marriage was bona fide. It's all kind of weird. Essentially, conditional LPRs must prove that their marriage was valid and bona fide twice. Not only that, there is no legal difference between a conditional LPR and regular LPR. Both are considered LPRs and granted the full benefits of LPR status until that status is taken away by an immigration judge. In this case, USCIS likely granted Mr. Ferreira conditional LPR status in 2009 or 2010. But then he got divorced in 2010. In 2011, he filed a petition to remove the condition on his status, perhaps requesting a waiver to the joint filing requirement due to his divorce, as is his right, but the decision is a little unclear on that. But USCIS denied that petition, holding that Mr. Ferreira had failed to show that his marriage, now divorced, had been bona fide at inception. Per the statute, that placed Mr. Ferreira in removal proceedings before an immigration judge, which, per the statute, meant that an IJ was to determine de novo and without deferring to USCIS at all, whether in fact the marriage was bona fide and Mr. Ferreira's condition should be removed, or alternatively, he should be deported. That charge of removability travels under INA Section 237A1DI, a non-citizen whose conditional permanent resident status was terminated by USCIS. Nothing super unique about this whole procedural history. What happened next, though, is, at least in my experience, the IJ held that DHS had not established removability by clear and convincing evidence. I could be wrong, but this does seem a bit confusing to me. It seems clear that removability was established simply by the existence of USCIS's decision not to remove the condition. 
then whether USCIS was right or wrong becomes the subject of the removal hearing. Lots of procedural history left out here, so maybe something unique happened, and also, Section 216 is a bit of a maze. In any event, the removal proceedings were terminated, and so Mr. Ferreira filed a new I-751 petition with USCIS. Seems like this time, Mr. Ferreira definitely requested a waiver of the joint filing requirement, again because he was divorced, remember? Nothing wrong with this either. Indeed, quote, recognizing that some marriages may be entered into in good faith, yet still fail, a conditional permanent resident who is unable to file jointly with a spouse or former spouse may be eligible for a discretionary waiver, end quote. It's just by definition more difficult to prove because if you're showing up with your spouse, it's usually easier to prove that the marriage was bona fide. When USCIS denied all of that again, removal proceedings were initiated. Again. DHS appeared at those new hearings twice and told the IJ twice that it didn't have Mr. Ferreira's file yet. Twice. This led the IJ to believe that DHS wasn't interested in prosecuting Mr. Ferreira's removal, to which the DHS attorney orally moved to terminate the whole case. Again. Mr. Ferreira objected this time. He wanted the IJ to decide whether his condition should be removed, because USCIS clearly wasn't going to do it, right? The IJ terminated and Mr. Ferreira appealed. And that's where we are. The BIA agreed with Mr. Ferreira. In doing so, the BIA took this opportunity to explain when IJs can terminate proceedings, a question the Attorney General is ostensibly still wrestling with as we speak. First, a good quote for IJs and non-citizens alike, quote, The Attorney General has, by regulation, given immigration judges significant latitude in controlling the cases before them, and immigration judges also have substantial authority to independently adjudicate those cases, end quote. This includes dismissing or terminating proceedings. Okay. One point for the IJs, with no requirement, by the way, that DHS ever agree to any of this. These are adversarial proceedings. The only limit, explained the BIA, is that termination, quote, must be consistent with law, end quote. Naturally. Here, explained the BIA, the only way to get review of USCIS's denial of an I-751 petition and or waiver of the joint filing requirement is an immigration court. Not only that, but when USCIS refuses to remove the condition to LPR status, the statute mandates that removal proceedings begin. So to the BIA, the IJ did indeed have authority to adjudicate DHS's motion to terminate. Even with this fairly strict statutory framework, the IJ still had discretion. Point two for the IJs. But the IJ, quote, erred in concluding that he was required to terminate proceedings simply because DHS had moved to do so. Instead, the immigration judge should have adjudicated the motion after considering the underlying facts and circumstances, end quote. The IJ has the power. DHS cannot force the IJ's hand in either direction. Point three for IJs everywhere. Properly reviewed under totality, said the BIA, quote, the respondent's interest in having an immigration judge review USCIS's denial of a Form I-751 is significant, end quote. Mr. Ferreira needed a decision from the IJ to definitively resolve whether he'll get to become a regular LPR, 
There were no other options. As such, and provided the respondent wants it, an IJ should deny DHS's motion to terminate in such circumstances and, quote, should ordinarily review the denial of a Form I-751, end quote. Which is what will now happen here. But I guess DHS gets as many continuances as they want, so long as they keep being unable to locate the file? Ah, to be DHS. Meaning, congratulations San Diego immigration attorney Jan Behar, who I know from personal experience at the Ala San Diego holiday party two weeks ago, also plays in an excellent band. And that is Matter of H.N. Ferreira. Which leaves only Delgado Victorio v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on December 18th, 2023. It's an exceptionally short immigration case. As such, the Fifth Circuit provides almost no facts about the case, but it appears that Mr. Delgado Victoria is a lawful permanent resident who was convicted of aggravated sexual assault with a deadly weapon in violation of Texas Penal Code Section 22.021A1A and 2AIV. He actually challenged that, that is, what he was convicted of, before the Fifth Circuit, but the Fifth Circuit summarily rejected that argument. So assuming he was convicted, the Fifth Circuit affirmed the immigration judge and the BIA's finding that this statute is an aggravated felony crime of violence under INA Section 11A43F, which makes him removable. What is a crime of violence? We're talking about it all the time of late. To qualify, a state statute must require as an element the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force. And in a quote I definitely don't hate, the Fifth Circuit explains that the Supreme Court's recent Bourdain decision means that, quote, these crimes must be committed with a mens rea of knowledge or intent, end quote. Met here, though, explained the Fifth Circuit. Under Texas state court precedent, quote, to be convicted, an individual must intentionally and knowingly cause unwanted sexual penetration or contact and use or exhibit a deadly weapon while doing so, end quote. To the Fifth Circuit, that means that by definition, the statute requires sufficient physical force or threatened physical force. Nor did the IJ and BIA err in denying Mr. Delgado Victorio a continuance, explained the Fifth. Not entirely sure why a continuance was sought, the court doesn't explain, or why the IJ was right to deny one. The Fifth Circuit states simply that, quote, immigration judges may consider a wide range of factors when determining whether good cause exists for a continuance. The immigration judge cited a number of factors, including Mr. Delgado Victorio's criminal history, end quote, and to the court properly denied a continuance. So there you have it a two-and-a-half-page presidential crimmigration decision. And that is Delgado Victorio v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review, or send us a tweet at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.